This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that we can be together for the next 60 minutes. And if you have a particular question that you are exploring in your Christian life and you'd like biblical counsel on, all you need to do is call us. Again, the local number is 843-525-1859. The 843-EXCHANGE is 525-1859, or you can call us toll-free at 877. The call letters WAGP 980 or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. Uh, when you call, if you're comfortable, you can go on the air live, or many don't want to do that, and they're simply welcome to dictate their question uh, to Deb, who's in another studio not far from where we are sitting this morning. So, Rick, let's go ahead, and we'll jump in with both feet, and by God's grace, we'll do our best to respond. Well, Pastor, this morning we're going all the way to the other side of the country where Edward from Villa Parca, or Villa Park, California, has the following question. Can mindfulness be taught in public schools to help children deal with stress and anxiety as well as create compassionate behaviors or is it a violation of the separation doctrine between church and state? Well, it's a, it's a good question, and uh, I suppose uh, philosophically we need to ask what is the value of mindfulness. Uh, it's a term that can be defined in different realms and in different areas, kind of like uh, Christianity or Judaism. There's various uh, sects. There's uh, conservative, Reformed, Orthodox. There's Baptist. There's Presbyterian. There's Catholic. There's Episcopalian. So there's not a consistency of definition across the boards or expression and technique of how to do quote unquote mindfulness. But it's a term basically used to describe a meditative state in which people direct their attention inward, and they supposedly become more self-aware. And so that's supposed to make you more alert and sensitive to a given situation that you're in, often teachers of mindfulness, which basically comes out of Buddhism. So it is religious in its origin and its genesis. It is religious. But uh, they will often use as an illustration of people who have some fixed standard, and they'll use like... um, uh, the two I've often heard is, uh, you know, the fork's supposed to go on the left side and someone on a place setting sticks, sticks, sticks it on the right side and they'd say, well, what difference does it make? Well, it makes a lot of difference. It's supposed to go on the left side. Well, why? And so they would say the mindfulness technique would make you alert to a given situation that you're in, also supposed to give a greater sense of uh, care and compassion for other people and or they would use the illustration of, um, you know, when we were uh, learning to drive and if you're on a slippery surface, you were supposed to pump the brakes. 
and uh, that was supposed to allow you to steer the car at the same time without going into a slide. Well, we don't really do that or teach that anymore unless you're driving a really old vehicle because most vehicles all have ABF brakes. So you just apply uh, the pedal and it does it for you, so to speak. So all that said, uh, I think um, in terms of the actual methodology, because it's rooted in Buddhism, which again, most promoters of mindfulness will readily admit it, um, but they are quote unquote adapting it to secular purposes. But Here's the thing is God causes us to use our minds. Uh, you are in the Shema, the uh, first word of um, hear. It's the Hebrew word hear, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And how are we supposed to worship God with our whole mind, body, soul, and strength? So our mind is included in the whole worship process. In the New Testament, Paul speaks about taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so we are to use our minds. We're not to empty them to get into some emotional, relaxed state that supposedly makes us more alert. And by the way, just from a practical, scientific point of view, the studies are mixed. Like MIT did a study on mindfulness, and the fact is is that they uh, determined that it was not helpful. And another school, Harvard did one, and they found that scores went higher. So one, even the data is conflicting. But lay that aside, it is being done in some public schools right now in the D.C. area. Uh, There's a school system in the Dallas Metroplex that have been doing it for over a decade. And I wouldn't want my kids there. Um, I wouldn't want them to be exposed to that because, one, we're to use our minds, but we are to use them within a context. And so the context that God gives is there are absolutes. And so you know, in a mindfulness state, they might say, well, in this situation, here's how we would apply the given, um, you know, decision that needs to be made. And over in this this situation, we'd make it, we'd do it this way. Well, you know, again, are there such a thing as absolutes? And if there are, that becomes the basis. And when Jesus walked on the earth, there were men who had some absolutes. They were called Pharisees. The word Pharisee means a separated one. And, uh, you know, no work on the Sabbath. That's what the Lord said. And and yet God, even in giving the rules for the Sabbath, expresses his compassion. And so Jesus said, well, look, if, you're, if your ox falls in the ditch on the Sabbath, are, are you going to cruelly leave him there or are you going to get him out? And so you're all bent out of shape because here's a man who, you know, had no use of his arm and I healed it on the Sabbath. And so they took a principle and they carried it to an extreme where they were not able to contextualize the moral principle. Well, in mindfulness, much like what's permeating the entire government school system today, is there are no absolutes. And so we have now children in some states as early as first grade being taught about transgenderism. You know, well, do you know what your gender is, honey? Well, maybe you're really not a girl. Maybe you're a boy. And so because there's no moral absolutes, um, that's why the whole government school system is adrift. And it's really a judgment of God. When a nation rejects God, when a nation says we no longer want God, then God as a expression of his judgment gives that nation over to an expression of his wrath. We often speak of um, cataclysmic wrath like in the great flood that took place or in the future coming tribulation 
or we speak of what we call eschatological wrath, eschatos, last things, and so the future wrath that is going to come, the Old and New Testaments alike teach there is a real place called hell, a place of eternal judgment. But we don't often speak about current day wrath, that there is wrath that even today, because God is involved in the world, he's not a deist where, you know, he he just set the world in motion and he's not engaged. No, God is up close and he's personal. And so Paul will write, for the wrath of God is revealed, not will be revealed. There's a future dimension when the Lord Jesus shall Uh, come back from heaven, the Bible says he will, future, deal out retribution to those who don't know the Lord. That's the future dimension. But here he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, and it's revealed against those who suppress the truth. And listen, Buddhists suppress the truth, Uh, and again, this is the root of the entire mindfulness um, movement. It's rooted in Buddhism, And so while they don't dress it up in Buddhism and they try to make it look very secular in the public school system because they don't want to violate so-called separation of, you know, of church and state, the fact is it's rooted in a religious cause and understand everything that is being taught in the public school system is rooted in some religious principle. One of the reasons God was able to bless this nation as he did so unusually out of all the nations of the world, other than maybe Israel in the history of the world, is because we honored God. The nation that exalts God, God will bless, the Proverbs say. The Psalms affirm it as well. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And we were blessed because we had a Judeo-Christian ethic. So someone's ethic is going to be taught. When they're teaching children that you know, hey, listen, we need transgender bathrooms. Um, you know, if you are now a boy and you want to become a girl and now, you know, complete, compete against other girls in the track team, you can do that. That's a morality that's being taught. That is a distorted morality, but every um, decision is based in some kind of a moral code. And so what God teaches is that there are certain things that are known about him. A, for instance, his existence since the creation of the world. Paul will write here in Romans 1, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood through what he has made so that men are without excuse. And then he goes on to say that even though they knew God, they know God exists, they didn't honor him as God. And so professing to be wise, he said they became fools. They exchanged the glory of God for an image, and they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. And that's what we basically decided to do in the 60s. It grew in the 70s and came into full bloom in the 1980s, where by that time virtually every school district in the United States forwardly taught evolution, that, you know, we are here through the evolutionary process that God is not our creator. They were suppressing the truth about God. And so, you know, we're basically a highly evolved animal. Listen, you teach young people that they are evolved from animals and they'll live like animals. They're not accountable to anyone. And so the scripture says when man makes this kind of a decision, when a nation makes this decision, that's what's happening. It's happening on a national level. God gives them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. And so with this rejection of God as the creator, uh, we were given over to impurity. And so we saw the whole sexual revolution. That was a judgment of God. You'd think, well, men would repent. Well, if they refuse to repent, 
Then it says in the second giving over, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature. For this reason, God gave them over, here's level two, to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one towards another, men with men committing indecent acts. If you want to know how God feels about homosexuality, just look at what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. He he burned the place into oblivion. It doesn't exist. Um, God only sometimes has to say something once to tell you how he feels. But the fact that homosexuality is a perversion, that you are not born this way. Listen, if you were born this way and created this way by God, then how could he hold people morally accountable for such behavior? He couldn't. He'd be the one to blame. Yet again, the scriptures say, don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the drunkards, nor revilers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse gives hope to anyone in any kind of lifestyle, and such were some of you. So God is very clear. People who live sexually immoral as heterosexuals who are drunkards, they get high, they get buzzed on the weekend, they're homosexuals in their behavior, they're male prostitutes. God says they have the marks of someone who has no inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. And so then the final phase is because they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Again, this is the wrath of God that is being revealed, and they do things that are not proper. And listen to some of the things. They are filled with greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know what's right, the ordinance of God, that such practices are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they're evangelists for them. That's the government school system. They are evangelizing sin. They are saying these behaviors are okay, so it's not if you're going to have a sex, let's have safe sex. Let's give them the equipment they need so they can have safe sex, so to speak. And this is an evil that has come upon our nation. And so to try to solve what is happening in the government school system by bringing in some form of meditation, which again is religiously rooted, which again is still going to be based on some moral premise. You know, your alertness of mind, your mindfulness to make a decision is still going to be generated by some moral code that you're going to follow or not. And if you reject the truth of God, then one moment, okay, let's save that baby. The next moment, as the governor of uh, New York and Virginia and North Carolina said, if a woman and her doctor decide that the baby's born alive and the, and the mother doesn't want the baby, they ought to be able to kill the baby on birthday. Okay, sign it into law. That's what we call a depraved mind. That's what we call an upside-down mind, to use Isaiah, where men call good evil and evil good, and it's wickedness. So the solution to the American problem is repentance. We need to acknowledge God. Now, whether or not this nation will repent, God only knows. We do know that there's coming a time in human history, and maybe we have reached that day, when there will be moral unrighteousness, much like the days of Noah, that will begin to cover the world. And so the days of Noah were real days. There was a real real worldwide flood. That's how evangelicals can come up 
not just evangelicals, though, even cre- uh, creation scientists who don't necessarily espouse Christianity. That's how we come up with the fossil record being laid out the way it is, because there was a worldwide flood that it didn't take millions of years to create this fossil record. It took a few moments of time when God flooded the earth. But God likened the coming of Messiah to the the days of Noah, which were days of moral impropriety, and to the days of Lot, which were days of moral perversion, homosexuality. The Bible teaches that will be the atmosphere worldwide before the Messiah returns. When you add to the fact that the prophets of old, and the New Testament affirms it as well, but Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, among others, affirm that at the end of time, God would take a scattered people, namely his people Israel, and bring them back into the land. In 1890, there were 25,000 Jews there. I was there three weeks ago. There were 6.8 million Jews there now today. It's grown even since I gave my last stats on a sermon I did a year ago in Revelation. 6.8 million Jewish people from over 100 nations around the world. That's what Moses said in Deuteronomy. That's what Isaiah, that's what Ezekiel, that's what Jeremiah said would happen at the end of time before Messiah comes. Now, the Jews are looking for the first coming. We're looking for the second coming, and their eyes are yet to be opened. The Bible promises they will be because God's not done with Israel. But what we are witnessing in our day is a worldwide breakdown of the moral fabric and to take some methodology like mindfulness and think that this is going to solve the problems like putting the use of old cliche lipstick on a pig. It ain't going to solve anything. Anyway, great question from this person in California. Let's go to the next. All right. Sue from Beaufort writes, can Pastor Brogy please explain Jonah 3.10, specifically that God relented? Also, would you explain Exodus 32.14 in light of verses such as Numbers 23.19 and James 1.17? All right. So God is unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes the Bible uses what we call anthropomorphisms. And anthropomorphism is when uh, you take um, human characteristics and apply them to God. And God does that sometimes to help us to understand his truth. Sometimes he does it in other fashions, like he speaks about the, the trees that clap their hands for joy. Uh, listen, uh, trees don't have hands that clap, uh, but God sometimes uses imagery in order to help us to understand truth. So it's not like, oh my, I I guess I'm going to have to change my mind on this. I didn't know these people were going to get right with me. And, and, uh, well, I guess I'll just hold back my wrath on Nineveh. God is omniscient. He knows the beginning and the end, but man had a real valid choice. And that's why Jonah was going to preach. Jonah, the prodigal prophet who's running away from God in chapter 2. And God, and you can understand why, because these are his enemies. Uh, The Ninevites were one of Israel's enemies. It would be like asking me, hey, listen, I want you to go and, you know, win Adolf Hitler to Christ. Hitler, man, he's my enemy. Why would I want to win him to Jesus? Well, um, you know, God sometimes sees behind the veneer, and he knows that there are people within that place, so all the leaders may be wicked. There are people whose hearts are soft and need to hear a message. So go to Nineveh, and he runs in the opposite direction. So God has him swallowed by a great fish. That's chapter 2, where he prays. The prodigal prophet becomes a praying prophet. 
But in chapter 3, he becomes the preaching prophet, and he's there, and he's preaching, and and really the greatest revival in history comes back, comes out, and then in chapter—so God relents. He changes his mind. He holds back on that which he said uh, he would do if they would not repent. And then, of course, um, he's the pouting prophet in the fourth chapter. And by the way, I have a whole sermon on this whole— concept of when God repents. If you go online, search the scriptures.org, you can hear all my messages on the book of Jonah. I preached it so long ago, I should probably preach the book again sometime. But still, I, I deal with this whole idea of what does it mean that God changes his mind? It's not like uh, we speak of it. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm he said he would do to his people and result to Moses's entreaty. What was God waiting for? He was waiting for someone who would stand in the gap, and Moses became that man, and God was gracious to respond to his prayer. But what if Moses hadn't stood in the gap? I think God would have brought his wrath uh, on that generation, uh, except those that were righteous, because God is a kind and passionate and righteous God. And, you know, remember that occasion when Abraham said, hey, Lord, you know, what if there were 50 people just 50 people in Sodom, would you spare it? I mean, you're a righteous God. Will not the God of the earth be just? Of course he will. It's a rhetorical question in the Hebrew. Yes, he'll be just. What if there were just 50 people? Yeah, I'd spare it if there were 50 people. So it doesn't mean that he would have obliterated every single person in the nation, but the majority who were living in evil by rejecting what God had clearly said. So Uh, These are anthropomorphisms in order to help us to see divine sovereignty and human responsibility, because man is not a robot. He has a free will. He has free moral choices to make. He's free to do as he chooses, but he's not free to escape the consequences of those choices that he might make. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we actually have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Yes. How can we help today? Yeah, I got a friend of mine. He's an African American, and he got proof that he's an Israelite uh, descent because he says uh, the Israelite and the Jew are two different things. So he claimed that they came for he got documents here from the United States to prove that he's an Israelite. So can you show me that is that what's the difference between a Jew and an Israelite, or if it's true that African Americans are descendants of, of, of Israelite descent? Well, it's a good question that you ask. You know about so-called Black Hebrews and who are these people and. Um, there's uh, different even denominations or subsects within the whole black Israelite movement. Uh, for instance, the most famous one is what's called the African Hebrew Israelite Nation of Jerusalem. Um, and they have a shortened an acronym for it. And that group began in the 1960s. And uh, they were uh, dismissed from the nation of Israel of being able to migrate there and be recognized as Jews, not because they were black, because you had all these Ethiopian Jews who were black, no doubt through one of Solomon's many wives, and they were real Jewish people practicing the law of Moses as best they knew it, and they were allowed, in fact, the government, the Israeli government made some massive um, 
plane rescues where they had so many hours given by the Ethiopian government to take the black people who were Jewish people out of there. So it's not an issue uh, of black, but it's whole ba- the whole premise is based basically on the fact that there were some lost tribes of Israel, which this question, by the way, came up last week. So you might want to listen to last week's Bible line because I kind of covered it in depth. But there are no lost tribes. Uh, there weren't lost to God. And they were certainly not lost to the writers of the Old Testament or for that matter, even when you step into the New Testament, they recognize that all 12 tribes are existent, are in existence, and that's why James is able to write to the 12 tribes. But they make this entire argument that, you know, these are people from a lost tribe, and uh, they are practicing an ancient form of Judaism. And look, to be a Jew, you had to be a descendant from Abraham, period. That's what makes a Jew a Jew, is you are a descendant from Abraham. That's clearly the understanding throughout the Old Testament, and it's clearly the understanding when when the New Testament is being written. People were saying, look, we're descendants of Abraham. That makes us right. And Jesus would say, look, if you were really uh, of Abraham's faith— Uh, you would do the deeds that Abraham did. You would show that you had a genuine relationship with the living God. Not that works save you, because they do not, but they are the proof of a relationship with the living Lord. And so a Jew is a descendant from Abraham, period. Uh, When we speak ethnically, there's no other definition unless you go beyond the Scripture itself. And that's basically what some folks have done. So when we speak of... And I got to define this here. When we speak of the black Hebrews or the black Israelites, there are different subsets and denominations, at least four major, and some who don't argue that they are derived from a lost tribe, though most of them do. But it sounds to me like your friend is saying, no, you know, uh, we have a different definition of Israelite and Jew, and it's a made up definition. Ask him to show you from Scripture where he gets this definition of an Israelite. He can't do it. Look at his name was Yaakov and God, Jacob, and God renamed him Yitzrael. And he had 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the progenitors of 12 tribes that give us the nation of Israel. Period. End of case. Closed discussion. They have nothing to say. Not to mention, listen, some of these folks who are in these black Israelite groups are embarrassing to evangelical African-American Christians because most of them are deeply racist and have even a hatred and and an unashamed hatred for, for white people and other groups, uh, much like, you know, some other folks across the country. I won't even get into it anymore. But listen to last week's Bible line. I deal with this a little bit more. Um, uh, you know, our questions come in so rapidly. I've been getting like 10, 15 a week lately. Can't even get to all of them, but I'm going to try to go a little shorter on some of them if it warrants it. And I, I know I just can't answer every single question that comes to my website, but I'll answer as many as I can. So let's go to the next question. All right. Our next caller would like to know if there is anywhere in the Bible where it says women should not wear jewelry. Well, it's a it's a good question. 
Um, and I have preached through the pastoral epistles, and as well as uh, the pastoral epistles are those books that were written primarily to pastors on how to run the church. And so First and Second Timothy and Titus, we typically refer to those as the pastoral epistles, along with, um, I've also preached through First Peter. And so in these two books, the whole issue of jewelry, at least in the New Testament, it's also addressed in the uh, Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with wearing jewelry, but sometimes um, people take uh, this verse. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper uh, for women making a claim to godliness. And then the other passage I would read would come from 1 Peter 3, where he says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And this is how he says women in former times adorn themselves. In other words, you can spend all your adornment, and the word is cosmeto, we get our word cosmetics from it, on the outside and ignore the inside. And some dear ladies, you know, we're grateful for the way God made you and, (coughs) excuse me, and that you do adorn yourself on the outside. But some dear ladies, if they spent, you know, one-tenth of the time on the inside, spending time alone with God in his word, letting him renew their mind through scripture, then they'd be a whole lot more beautiful on the outside. And so... It's not an exclusive thing. Hey, you can't braid your hair. You can't wear gold. I mean, this is the easier text that I'm reading first. He mentions the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Does it mean God doesn't want me to put on dresses? Or does he want me to go around naked? Of course not. So he's saying don't let it be only external, merely external. You need to focus on the hidden person. You need to work on the inside. The Timothy passage, and again, I have a whole sermon on this. Go to searchthescriptures.org. You can go to the App Store and download the Search the Scriptures app. You can click on 1 Timothy, and I've preached verse by verse by verse by verse by verse all the way through 1 Timothy. And so this one's a little more challenging, but it's not difficult if we just look at it in light of the rest of Scripture. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. So modestly and discreetly, there's the balance. Modesty, modestly, you know, that's something that's kind of ignored today. It's like, how much of my breast can I let you see? Um, let me uh, spray on my dress. Yeah, that's immodest, and uh, that's a sad day that we live in. But that's the day of sensuality that we just referenced from Romans 1. God is giving this culture over in a judgment discreetly. That means you're not a, like a show woman where you walk into the church and, whoa, you look at that, man. Uh, that a dress is like, in, not, I'm not talking about an immodest dress, but so wild. And of course, um, many times um, Timothy's dealing with Ephesians, even some of the elaborate hairdos 
that a woman uh, could wear in the first century is like, would you look at that hairdo? Wow, gee whiz, look at all the gold and jewels in it and you know, where you're calling attention to yourself. So you can dress modestly and at the same time just call attention to yourself, which is what you're not supposed to do. Um, our, our goal is not to get people to, you know, fix their eyes on us as it is to glorify God through our life. But this is one of the not buts of Scripture, not with, but rather. And so when in many of the not buts of Scripture, it means not this exclusively, uh, but it doesn't mean to the exclusion. For instance, here's a good example of a not but. Let me just turn to the Gospel of John for just a moment. Of course, John chapter 14 deals with um, the upper room discourse, and he says, no longer do I call you slaves. Um, Why not? Well, he says, you're my friends, if you do what I command. So no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Does it mean we're not slaves anymore? No, we're not exclusively slaves. We are slaves. He that would be great among you, let him be. And it's the same word, by the way, slave. We translate it sometimes servant. Let him be the slave of all. Um, So we are to be slaves of Christ. So no longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends. And so this is one of the not buts. You're still slaves, but you're not just a slave. You are a friend of the living God. So when he says, I don't want women to uh, not to wear braided hair, gold, or pearls, or he's saying not exclusively this, but rather, here's the focus. Just like Peter says, it's not merely external, but internal, making for um, internal work uh, if you claim to be a godly woman. So anyway, I have a whole sermon on that in both passages from 1 Peter 3 or I just read from 1 Timothy 2, and you can listen to a much more in-depth message. Let's go to the next uh, caller that has just shot us a question. Okay, our next caller would like to know what happens to people thrown into the lake of fire. Do they stay there forever, or do they burn up? And that's the second death. Um, It's a good question. The second death is the lake of fire. This is the second death. So in Revelation 20... In verses 11 through 15, he speaks of the great white throne judgment. And then he says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But does he burn up? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, at the um, second coming of Jesus Christ, if you remember the um, end of the seven-year tribulation period, Uh, We are told when Jesus comes back from heaven to the earth, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, the prophet Zechariah says. And anyway, at some point it says the beast, that's the term used in the Revelation for this coming world leader. He's beast-like in his character. His most popular name known by most of us is Antichrist, but he actually has over 30 different titles in the Old and New Testament. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, the 666 that he described back in chapter 13, and those who worshiped his image. These two, the Antichrist and his false prophet, were thrown alive because you're conscious in hell into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. 
Then what happens? Satan is bound for a thousand years, and there's a reason for that. And if you've heard my exposition in Revelation 20, I'm preaching through the book of Revelation right now on Sunday morning. And again, those are all available at searchthescriptures.org. Uh, for a thousand years, the devil is bound. At the end of the thousand years, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for a war. These are the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those who survived the tribulation, Jew and Gentile alike, who enter into the Messiah's kingdom and unlike us who are in resurrected bodies and are like angels in the sense that we don't marry nor are given in marriage where we, you know, uh, have children, these enter their natural bodies, which, by the way, demands a pre-tribulational rapture. Just think that through. And uh, they will have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and those individuals will need to make a decision for Christ. And not all of them will. And so the devil who's been locked up for a thousand years will be released, and he'll uh, tempt these unbelievers who did not acknowledge Yeshua, Jesus, as Lord. And the scripture says that, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now listen, where the beast and the false prophet are also not exterminated. That's where they are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know what forever and ever means? It means forever and ever. And by the way, when Jesus speaks of one of the judgments, there's a number of judgments that are going to come on the earth when Jesus comes back at his second coming. And one of the judgments that are mentioned is the separation of the true believing Gentiles from the unbelieving Gentiles, the basis being how they treated the Jewish people. Because during the tribulation period, called by Jeremiah the time of Jacob's trouble, tens of millions of Jewish people are going to realize that the one that they had rejected to be the Messiah is the Messiah. They're going to believe that Jesus is Lord. In fact, they are going to be the people who are preaching to all the nations of the world. 144,000 Jews from 12 tribes will be preaching the gospel. And Jesus said it will go out to the end of the whole earth, the gospel through these men, and then the end will come. And so he uh, acknowledges that during this time, there will be Gentiles who uh, are hateful towards the Jewish people. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 25. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, thirsty, something to drink, a stranger, you invited me in naked, you clothed me sick, you visited me, so on and so on. The righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to the extent you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, 
Jesus is a Jew. He's talking about his Jewish brothers and how they treated Israel. Even the least of them, you did it to me. Then those who are on his left. Remember, there's three groups here. There's the goat that is a lost man. There's the sheep who's a saved man. And then there's his brethren. Those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. You know what eternal means? Forever which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. God never made hell originally for man. It was made for the devil and his fallen angels. If you go to hell, you're trespassing. God doesn't want you to go there. You will go there because you rejected God's solution. I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty, nothing to drink. A stranger. You didn't invite me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick, so on, so on. They will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? Then he will answer them. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, talking about his Jewish brethren again, you did not do it to me. So three groups of people, goat, the sheep, all Gentiles, and my brethren. And again, you're not saved by works. You are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. And Jesus is affirming that you will see who the true believers are during the time of the tribulation by the way they deal with God's people, Israel. But listen to what he then says. These will go, these goats, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the Bible does not teach annihilationism. Jehovah's Witness may, but they're a cult, and they're broken and twisted and all warped in so many different ways in the way they think because, you know, they created their own version of the Bible that is not based on any kind of scholarship, uh, any kind of knowledge of Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, the three languages God wrote the Holy Scripture in. Look, if you were a stark atheist and you knew Greek or Hebrew, you would know that the Jehovah's Witness could not come up with the New World Translation. It's just an errant translation. But among um, a number of conclusions they make is they say, well, people who die lost, who are not basically a Jehovah's Witness, they're just annihilated. They just cease to exist. No, the same word that's used here for eternal punishment is used for eternal life. And I might say the same word, Ionion, is used in 1 Timothy, Ionion Theos, the eternal God. So to say that God is not forever is to say that heaven is not forever. It's to say that hell is not forever, and you can't do that. The Bible teaches the eternal retribution of God Almighty. But this caller, go to searchthescriptures.org. Search by Scripture, get the phone app. You can listen to it while you're driving down the street and uh, or working in your yard and listen to the sermon on Revelation 20, 11 to 15. I deal with this in a lot more depth. Let's go to the next question. All right, our next caller has a question about Hebrews 4. Is the rest spoken of here? Um, well, actually, we'll take that in just a second, but we always give preference to live callers, and we have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, go ahead. How are you We're... doing, uh, Dr. Brogy? Um, this is uh, Michael Stewart. I'm from Savannah, Georgia. I was listening to your commentaries, and I also like listening to Chip Ingram's commentaries as well, and uh, I was just curious what your uh, opinion of him was. Well, um, he, he's a brother in Christ, so, you know, I, I love him for that. I, 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 there's a lot 
that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but he's a brother in Christ, and let me just leave it at that. So, All right, very good. I'll go back to that other question. Um, that caller would like to know about Hebrews 4. Is the rest spoken of when we accept Christ, or is that the rest to come in the future, i.e. death? No, he's speaking about a rest that remains right now for the people of God. And so um, he has just illustrated how, um, because of unbelief in chapter 3, just always remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, and they're added almost a 1,000 years after the Bible is completed so we can find our way around the Bible. Um, Take care, brethren, I'm reading now in chapter 3, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, There's an assumption, by the way, that an obedient believer is engaged with other believers. So the Christian who says, well, you know, I just don't go to church or this or that. One, he's disobeying a command later giving that we're not to forsake our assembling together. Listen, Jesus, as was his custom, Luke 4 says, went to the synagogue. Now, he could have reasoned, well, look, the whole synagogue system is so corrupt and legalistic and distorted, I'm not going to go to church. But he went to the synagogue every single Saturday. That was his custom. And on the first day of the week, we are to find the best Bible-believing church. I, I met a lady who was on our Bluffton campus last Sunday, and she lives in Georgia, and she said, oh, I'm just so glad. And she said, I just am fed and just thrilled that I can come here. And do you think it'd be okay if I just live streamed the service on Sunday morning and didn't go to church at all? Because my pastor doesn't even open the Bible and teach it. I said, no, that would not be correct. I said, now, look, if you want to live stream the 915 service because your pastor's not teaching God's word, and that's what we're supposed to do as pastors, great. But be in a Bible-believing church at 11 o'clock and pray for that pastor support the pastor, and serve God's people and encourage God's people. Otherwise, you'll be forsaking the assembling together. He assumes that we have a relationship with Christians such that while it's called today, that means every day, that we are encouraging each other and none are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Messiah, of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Yes. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yes. Everyone 20 and up died uh, in the wilderness in that 40 years. Uh, Moses is very clear on that. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? That's right, if you remember They um, are given a report from the 12 spies, 10 who give an unfavorable report, and two, Caleb and Joshua, who, by the way, were the only others that made it into the promised land. Not even Moses went in because of one act of pride. In either case, uh, two came back and said, the land's just like it is, just like God promised it, as the 10 said. But the ten said, ah, there's giants in our midst. We'll never be able to conquer them. Moses sent in the 12 spies not to see if 
they would conquer the land, but how they would conquer the land. Again, there's a beautiful uh, display between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God had promised them the land, but what did the people do? They believed the majority report. And so God said, you're not going to go into the land. The next day they say, oh, Moses, we sinned. Forgive us for our unbelief. We, we shouldn't have ignored God and his promises. And, you know, and they go in anyway, they attempt, and there's a great slaughter. Uh, it was very, very sad what happened. And, and God said, no, you're not going to go in because of your unbelief. They had pushed God to the limit. God is patient. He's long-suffering. And there was trial after trial after trial. And they had pushed too far at this point. And so as an expression of God's discipline, we don't run God. God runs us. Now, I know we want to manufacture God in our own image and say, well, this is what I think I should do. You know, I don't want to go to church on Sunday because my preacher stinks or the church is weak or this or that. And so now we're telling God what we're going to do rather than letting God tell us. So it was an issue of unbelief. Therefore, here's chapter 4. Let us fear. You know, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord while a promise remains for entering his rest, lest any one of you seem to have come short of it. And so he's reminding us that there is a rest that continues to exist today for the people of God, but it's a rest that is built on our believing God. And so it's in that context, these oft-quoted verses, but not usually put together in their context, where it says, for the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there's no creature, no person hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of with him whom we have to do. So there's God's word that is the basis of our faith, because no one has ever had faith apart from God's word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing God's word. Even before the Bible was written, those who came in faith like Abel. Abel gave a sacrifice that God was pleased with, and he was displeased with what Cain did. Why? Because one came on the basis of faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. The other came on the basis of his own thoughts. And that's what the Jewish people were doing. We don't care that God said the land is ours. We're going to believe what these ten spies said about the land that the people in there are too big and we can't conquer them. That's man doing what he thinks is right rather than believing what God says is right. And so he is reminding us if we want to enter this rest, we need to focus on what God's word has said, which is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And then he closes the chapter reminding us that we have a high priest who uh, can sympathize with our weaknesses so that when we see God's word and we see even a challenge that we don't think we can face, we have a high priest who will give us grace if we will draw near and ask for it. So great question. Let's go on to the next. All right. We've got a live caller standing by and about four minutes left. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Pastor Brogy. I've been listening to you for a long time and I get a lot of valuable teaching from you. Um, I currently reside in Charleston, and I was just wondering what you thought of uh, Seacoast Church. Um, I've recently uh, been told by a pastor there that they're only interested in lost people. They're not really interested in feeding the flock. And I'm really thinking of uprooting myself from the church and and going uh, 
even driving down to Beaufort uh, just to just to be fed. Um, I, I sought out this church just because of my family with my young kids, and I thought it'd be a good fit for them. But as I'm learning, I'm 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 not getting fed there uh, on my own. Yeah, here's um, the challenge. Uh, I'm familiar with the church. Yeah, no, thank you. It's a great question. Here's the deal, brothers. You have a slice of time in which to raise your children. So you want to be in the strongest, best church you can be in. Yeah, it's a big church. It's created a lot of crowds, but it's a very unhealthy church and a church that has created certain premises that are less than biblical. One, how do you do church? So, you know, the pastor there, along with Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and others, came up with a new paradigm on how we should do church on Sunday morning. And it's an unbiblical paradigm where we say, well, the church service is to be to reach lost people. And it's not. Can lost people be reached in a church service? Of course, Paul assumes they're going to be there. By God's grace, almost every week we see people in Beaufort County and Aiken County and other places coming to know Jesus as Lord because the word is being preached and sometimes they're in our midst. They come and Paul assumes that unbelievers will be present in 1 Corinthians 14. I mean, if a Christian is passionate about Jesus, he's going to care about lost souls and reach out to them. But the church service is not to be geared towards the lost person first and foremost, but the saved individual. That's not to say that you couldn't have a special outreach or emphasis, but Listen, when you fail to expound the Word of God verse by verse by verse by verse by verse, then you weaken a church and you destroy a church. And if I were the devil and I wanted to destroy the evangelical church in America like he's doing, I would get them to adopt the Rick Warren, Bill Heibel, Seacoast model, where exposition of Scripture is basically void in an in-depth way. And that's why people in these places are incredibly doctrinally ignorant. That's why Seacoast has women pastors. Listen, that ought to be a red flag to you right off, where they have women in leadership positions. You know, and, not, and that, what that does is it dismisses the role that God has given a woman to be a mother and to raise her children. No, we want to be a Beth Moore. We want to be famous. We want to be a big shot. We want to travel the country and speak and, and do all these other things. And we want equal ground that men have because, you know, what we do is not that important. What the men do is really significant. That's, that's the mentality that's being fed at places like Seacoast. It's unhealthy. It's, it's helping to destroy Christianity in America. That's why God warns pastors, be careful what kind of building tools you use when you build the church. Build it on the Word of God. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today.